Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The War of Independence, Part 5, The Escape from Lincoln Jail. Last week's episode covered what are usually referred to as the opening shots of the war, fired at Salahed Beg in Tipperary on January the 21st, 1919. Today we look at the next major event in the unfolding conflict, one of the most audacious IRA operations of the entire war, that saw three high-profile Republican prisoners attempt a daring escape from Lincoln Jail in England. Additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. And the artwork for this series was by Keith Hines. A key text used in this episode was Declan Dunn's Peter's Key. In two weeks' time, the second Q&A with Dr Brian Hanley, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin, will take place. Now, this is exclusively open to listeners of the show who support my work on Patreon. If you sign up on Patreon today, you can get early access to ad-free versions of the show, episode guides, and then there's tons of bonus podcasts from the last two or three years as well. You can sign up and get all that today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I've also added additional merch to the shop this week. Alongside the great posters from the revolutionary period, there's also now flags as well. You can check those out at the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Finally, don't forget to follow the show on socials. It's Irish History on Twitter and Instagram. In January 1919, Eamon de Valera cut something of a solitary figure. He was often to be found in the exercise yard of Lincoln Jail, playing handball alone, his mind seemingly focused on other places, people and events. There was no question that month should have been the high point of his political career. On the 21st of January, Republicans in Dublin had gathered to hold the first independent Irish Parliament, or Doyle, and had he been able to attend, de Valera would have been elected President of the Irish Republic that was declared that day. Instead, he was languishing behind the walls of Lincoln Jail, having been arrested in May 1918 on trumped-up charges known as the German Plot. 
He, along with scores of leading Irish Republicans, had been accused of planning a second rising in Ireland supported by the German Empire in the closing stages of World War I. The charges were baseless and used as a pretext to intern numerous high-profile activists who had been to the fore of the anti-conscription movement in Ireland. However, while prison officers watched over de Valera as he spent hour after hour playing handball in that lonely exercise yard, little did they know that he was not ruining lost chances. He was, in fact, about to bring their prison centre stage in the unfolding war of independence. While de Valera may have missed the opening meeting of the first Doyle, long before it had taken place, he and the other Republican prisoners in Lincoln, with the support of the IRA, had hatched a daring escape plan. If they pulled it off, de Valera would grab news headlines across the globe. The symbolism of breaking de Valera out of jail would be invaluable. If the president of Sinn Féin, the would-be leader of the Irish Republic, was sprung from a prison by the IRA, the army of that republic, it would send a clear message to the world. Realistically, though, the chances of the plan succeeding were slim. In anticipation of the arrival of de Valera and the other prisoners, security at Lincoln had been enhanced. While the jail was already surrounded by a 20-foot-high wall, an additional barbed wire fence was erected outside this. The Republicans were then housed in a separate annex that had once been a borstal for young offenders. This had been empty since World War I, its inmates having been conscripted into the army. While any successful escape attempt would need the support of the IRA outside the prison, all letters were passed through the prison censor's office where Irish speakers had been hired to translate anything written in Irish. Taking all this into account, the plan the prisoners in Lincoln devised was remarkable in that it didn't involve tunnels or climbing walls. Strange as it may sound, they intended to literally walk out of the prison. The idea had been developed after one of the Republicans in Lincoln, the Kilkenny native Peter DeLucre, had identified a weakness in how the jail operated. He realised that nearly all doors in Lincoln were opened using the same key. Therefore, if they could secure a copy of this key, they would be able to open all the doors in the prison. Now central to this plan succeeding was getting a copy of the key and this was neither easy nor straightforward. They couldn't simply steal it as this would immediately raise an alarm. Instead, they decided that they would get the IRA outside the prison to make a copy and then smuggle it back into the jail. Now for the plan to work, they obviously needed the exact dimensions of the key and to this end, they identified the prison chaplain as a potential source. He had his own key and as a devout Catholic, Eamon de Valera regularly served at Mass in the prison, giving him access to both the chaplain and more importantly, his key. After gathering wax from candles in the chapel, de Valera melted these into an old tobacco tin, creating a mould. Then, in late 1918, de Valera, while serving at Mass, intentionally left something behind in the sacristy, giving him a pretext to return while the priest was on the altar. Having time alone in the sacristy, he quickly took the priest's key, pressed it into the wax, before returning it so the priest was none the wiser. Now, with the exact dimensions of the key, they set about getting these to the IRA outside the prison. Obviously, they simply couldn't write them in a letter, given the prison censors carefully scrutinised everything they wrote. Instead, they drew a cartoon on a card depicting a humorous scene that happened to include a key and a keyhole. Both were the exact life-size depictions with precise measurements. There was no doubt the message was subtle and vague. All they could do was hope their comrades back in Dublin would realise what they were trying to communicate. Even still, 
vague as it was, they didn't risk passing it through the prison censor's office. So instead, they wrote a message on the card asking for a bottle of whiskey and then approached an individual warden asking him to personally post it. The warden, not realising what he was about to do, posted the letter, assuming the only reason the prisoners wanted to avoid the censors was to get their hands on the bottle of whisky. So the card was first sent to an Irish priest, Father James Kavanagh, in Leeds, who, while very confused, assumed it had some significance, and he passed it on to Liam McMahon, a prominent Irish Republican, a member of the IRA in the north of England. McMahon also recognised the card had a deeper meaning, although he was uncertain as to what it was. Rather than risk posting it back to Ireland, instead, Patrick O'Donoghue, another senior IRA figure in England, carried the card directly to Dublin. It eventually reached the IRA general headquarters, where Michael Collins realised what the prisoners were communicating, and plans to support their escape began. This first letter was followed by further communications containing coded messages about what they would need and what date they planned to leave on. Meanwhile, the most important aspect of the plan, the replica of the key, was manufactured based on the measurements sent from Lincoln. Once completed, they faced the next major hurdle, how to get this back into the prison. Now, so far, the plan had gone remarkably well, but this luck would not last. Although it had all the hallmarks of a plot in a novel, the IRA settled on what was one of the few options open to them to smuggle the key back into the prison. They baked it into a cake and then Finton Murphy, the future quartermaster general of the IRA, was dispatched to Lincoln to deliver it to the prisoners. While everything had gone remarkably well, it was here the plan began to falter. Finton Murphy recalled how this was supposed to work. Having been born in London, and having no difficulty in reverting to an English accent, I decided to pretend to be a commercial traveller. And whilst in Manchester, I had met an acquaintance from Dublin, who asked me when she learned I was through Lincoln, if I would oblige her by leaving a parcel at the jail for a friend of hers. When Murphy arrived at the prison, it didn't go according to plan. I knocked at the wicked gate in the main door, and it was opened to me by the warder on duty. He inquired my business, and I readily repeated my story, handing him at the same time my parcel. He made no move to take it, and I was somewhat taken aback when he muttered something about the chief warder. Murphy tried again just to give the warder the cake and leave, but by this point they were somewhat suspicious. He then told me forcibly I must see the chief warder and that I should come inside for that purpose. I stepped inside the gate, which he immediately closed and locked. I knew the procedure. Questions opening of the parcel, if a cake, the cutting or prodding with the knife. I was in a quandary. The chief came in, a gruff individual. I greeted him cordially. He grunted disagreeably. I watched the parcel slowly opened. At last the cake lay exposed on the table, and whilst we continued our conversation, he produced a long knife. Instead of cutting the cake into four quarters, he merely stabbed it through and through. Remarkably, the warder had missed the key and the cake was duly passed on to the prisoners. Elated, the plan had worked. This quickly turned to despondency. When they tried to open a door to test it, the key snapped in the lock. Undeterred, the prisoners communicated the problem to the IRA and they set about making a second key. This time, an extra key was also made and again smuggled into the prison in a cake. 
When the first of these two keys was tried, it again broke in the lock and then the second proved to be too small. So a third cake with yet another key was baked and again this was smuggled into the prison. But yet again, this didn't work either. It was clear the IRA outside the prison couldn't make a key based on the dimensions they had. However, rather than give up, they settled on a novel idea. A fourth cake, this one containing two blank keys and two files, were sent to the prisoners. This allowed Peter de Lucre to make a key inside the prison. He was able to test the key as he made it and as the date of the escape, the evening of February the 3rd, fast approached, he was making a key that would finally work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Meanwhile, back in Dublin, the IRA were busy drawing up the logistics of the plan that would get de Valera and the others as far away from Lincoln as fast as possible once they escaped from the prison. Michael Collins, soon to be appointed the IRA's Director of Intelligence, and Harry Boland, who had been the architect of Sinn Féin's electoral successes in 1918, now travelled to Lincoln to oversee the operation outside the prison. On the evening of February the 3rd, 1919, Collins, Boland and a third IRA volunteer, James O'Donoghue, arrived outside the prison by taxi, carrying weapons in case they were required. A fourth volunteer, Frank Kelly, was on lookout in the surrounding area. Meanwhile, a getaway car was waiting a few streets away. 
The first step in the plan was to cut a hole through the outer barbed wire fence and once this was done, Boland and Collins set the plan into motion. Harry Boland flashed a torch towards the prison to signal to the prisoners inside they were waiting. In something of an ill omen, however, the escape got off to a bad start when the torch switch jammed and Boland was unable to turn it off. Eventually, he smothered the light with his coat and somehow didn't draw attention to himself. Inside the prison, Eamon de Valera now lit several matches allowing them to burn down to confirm they had received the message. The escape was on. Three prisoners had been selected to escape. It wasn't feasible or possible that all Republicans in Lincoln could leave the jail and evade capture. It was essential de Valera went given his stature within the Republican movement and he was joined by Sean McGarry and Sean Milroy. Once they had seen the light flashed by Harry Boland and de Valera had returned the signal with the matches, they quietly left their cells with the key. They approached the first locked door and put the key in. This was the moment of truth. They turned the key and it worked and then door after door opened while the three approached the outer wall at the rear of the prison where a small gate remained the final obstacle. The escape had gone remarkably well so far. They were literally walking out of captivity. On the other side of this gate, Harry Boland and Michael Collins were now waiting and to speed up the operation, Boland, who had brought yet another copy of the key, set about opening the gate from the outside. However, as he turned the key, like with every key manufactured outside the prison, it snapped in the lock with de Valera, Milroy and McGarry now trapped inside the prison wall. It was only a matter of time before they were spotted. A rope ladder had been brought in the case of such an eventuality. This could be thrown over the wall, but this would take a considerable amount of time and could easily attract attention. Desperate, de Valera tried his key. He slowly inserted it into the lock and successfully managed to push what remained of Harry Boland's broken key out the far side. He then started to turn the key. At any point now, the silent prison would spring to life as the warders realised they were not in their cells. To their relief, the key didn't break. The gate opened and the three emerged into the cold night air outside Lincoln Jail. Once outside, de Valera, the most senior figure, took command of the operation from Collins and immediately rebuked both Harry Boland and Michael Collins for having come on the operation themselves. This wasn't an idle assertion of authority, but a salient point. If anything went wrong now, the British authorities would capture two additional senior Republicans. Indeed, the escape was in some ways entering its most risky phase. They had to get away from the prison and out of Lincoln as fast as possible. Once the alarm was raised, something which would happen at any moment, a group of five men would immediately arouse suspicion. Furthermore, de Valera himself was very distinctive in his appearance. Known as the Longfellow, he was over six foot tall at a time when the average height in Britain was five foot five inches. The IRA had arranged for a car to meet them, but this was several hundred metres away, and to their horror, as they gathered themselves outside the gate, they heard voices in the darkness approaching. At this time, they were still on open land between the prison wall and the outer barbed wire fence, with no good reason to be there. To make matters worse, as they fumbled in the darkness, they couldn't find the hole that Boland and Collins had made to get in. Worse still, the voices they heard were those of three soldiers making their way in their general direction. They weren't on duty, but instead had come from a nearby military hospital 
and were accompanied by three women. While the Republicans managed to find the hole in the fence, they couldn't avoid meeting these soldiers. De Valera now realised the game was up and suggested they take a chance and run for it. Harry Boland remembered. We'd only gone a few feet outside the gate when we saw three soldiers and three girls coming along through the fields towards the prison. And De Valera said, it's all done with us now and wanted to run. I told him that the men were busy with what they were doing and that it would be very little to get by them. In a moment of quick thinking, Boland gave De Valera a fur-lined coat, linked his arm and pretended the two were a couple. Then, with nerves of steel, as the soldiers approached, rather than try and keep his distance, Boland instead disarmed any suspicions they might have had by pretending to be drunk and joking with them. When we walked towards the soldiers and the three girls, and as they came near us, I started a joke with one of the girls about the kind of night it was and her soldier boy. And as I went boy, I joked with her in a jocular way, and all of them laughing past us. I pretended to be drunk myself. After this encounter, they finally made it to where Patrick O'Donoghue was waiting with a car. De Valera, McGarry and Milroy got in and set off in the direction of the town of Worksop, about 40 kilometres away. Collins and Boland then left on foot, boarding a train for London. Meanwhile, inside the prison, the remaining Irish Republicans continued to do everything possible to maintain the impression nothing was awry. Indeed, it was 10.40 that evening, over three hours later, that the alarm was finally raised. By then, the three escaped prisoners had changed transport in works up and moved on to Sheffield where they again changed vehicles before finally reaching Manchester where the three were sheltered by the Irish community in the city. As news of the escape broke the following morning, it made headline news across the world. It was deeply embarrassing for the British government. The leader of the Irish Republican movement had escaped from a prison in England. Sensational news reports were enhanced by the fact that the entire affair was surrounded by a degree of mystery. It was unclear how they had escaped, while speculation as to the whereabouts of De Valera in particular ran wild. Some newspapers claimed he had successfully returned to Ireland. Others said he had travelled to Paris to try and attend the post-World War I peace talks where the future of Europe was being decided. Still more outlandish claims would put him in Moscow, Rio de Janeiro or even Beijing. Indeed, before the week was out, the Sunday Mirror was reporting rumours from Ireland that de Valera was in fact dead. He was in fact very much alive, and in the house of the Irish priest, Father Sean O'Mahony, the chaplain of the workhouse in Crumsell, a suburb of Manchester. Overall, the escape could not have gone better, but while Republicans celebrated, the re-emergence of Eamon de Valera had major political implications. While he remained in hiding, many wondered what he would do, at some point he would resurface in Ireland and some believed his return could see an escalation in the IRA campaign. While he was incarcerated in Lincoln, de Valera himself had spent several months planning this precise moment and when he made his plans known, they took pretty much everyone by surprise. While the two were still in England, Eamon de Valera revealed his intentions to Michael Collins. He did not intend on coming to Ireland at all, but instead he was planning to travel directly to the USA. Although a strange course of action, this did fit in with Sinn Féin's general political strategy around this time. The party's primary focus were on the Paris peace talks which had opened in January that year. 
Sinn Féin had identified the US President Woodrow Wilson as a potential ally, hoping he might facilitate them to present the case for Irish independence at the conference. This would have given them a global stage. Now their faith in Wilson was based on views he had expressed during the First World War, summarised in a speech he had made to the Joint Houses of Congress when he had outlined the US government's war aims. What we demand in this war is that the world be made fit and safe to live in, and particularly that it be made safe for every peace-loving nation which, like our own, wishes to live its own life, determine its own institutions, be assured of justice and fair dealing by the other peoples of the world as against force and selfish aggression. With this in mind, de Valera believed he would be best placed to pressurise Wilson if he could mobilise support among Irish Americans and US politicians. When Michael Collins returned to Dublin, bringing this news that de Valera would not be coming home, the wider leadership of Sinn Féin were bewildered. Piers Beasley, a senior figure in the movement, who was born and raised in Liverpool to Irish parents, later recalled the reaction in Dublin. We felt de Valera's departure would be a fatal mistake, that the country would misunderstand his motives in regard to selfish or even desertion. When this view was expressed, Collins replied, I told him so, but you know what it is to try to argue with Dev. He said he had thought it all out in prison, and that he felt the one place where he can be useful to Ireland is in America. The meeting took the view that the place for an Irish leader was in Ireland, where the strength of the fight put up would determine the support in America. And it was decided to send Cockle Brewer to urge De Valera to not go at all, or, failing that, to show himself first in Ireland, so that the publicity value of his escape would not be dissipated. Cockle Brewer, as agreed, travelled to Crumsell, where he did manage to convince De Valera to return to Ireland, but he was still intent on going to the USA. While he was finally smuggled back across the Irish Sea to Ireland, he only stayed in the country for two weeks before returning back to Liverpool on March 3rd. However, while de Valera awaited arrangements for his onward journey to the US, news broke that a founding member of Sinn Féin, the recently elected MP, Pierce McCann, had died from the Spanish flu while imprisoned in Gloucester Jail. This precipitated a major shift in British policy. Fearing more deaths would follow, something that would only increase animosity in Ireland, they released all those interned in the so-called German plot. Had he been in prison, de Valera would have been released with the others, so there was no longer a risk of arrest if he appeared in public. Although still intent on travelling to the US, de Valera did return to Ireland to appear in public and capitalise on his escape. No longer on the run, once back in Ireland, he met his family for the first time since his arrest, ten months earlier, in May 1918. His wife, Sinead, had been pregnant at the time, so this was the first occasion he saw his daughter, Emer. This underscored the enormous personal toll the conflict was taking on families. Sinead de Valera had to effectively raise a young family on her own. Many other women, who were less well off than the de Valeras, faced even greater challenges, when their husbands were imprisoned, severely wounded or killed. During the following weeks, de Valera was a celebrated figure when he appeared in public anywhere in Ireland. At a meeting of the Doyle, he was elected President of the Irish Republic and in terms of a strategy and to the relief of more conservative members of Sinn Féin who feared he would argue for a more intensified IRA campaign, he reaffirmed the Republican commitment to presenting the case for Irish independence at the Paris peace talks. De Valera outlined this strategy before the Doyle. In order to secure our own de jour government, 
and for the Irish Republic the necessary international recognition, we shall send at once our accredited representatives to Paris, to the Peace Conference, and to the League of Nations. We shall give them all necessary authority, and that they may proceed there in a manner befitting their character as the representatives of a nation. While many Republicans in Sinn Féin at this point believed there might be a political rather than military route to independence, Sean T. O'Kelly, the party's representative in Paris, was beginning to realise this was a doomed strategy. The British government had made it clear they would in no way allow Irish Republicans to attend the conference. Meanwhile, the man they had invested so much hope in, Woodrow Wilson, was realising he had not fully understood the complexity of European politics when he offered his support for self-determination. He would later say, When I gave utterance to those words, I said them without knowledge that nationalities existed which are coming to us day by day. And you do not know, and you cannot appreciate the anxieties I have experienced as the result of these millions of people having their hopes raised by what I have said. The American delegation had left the press in Paris in little doubt as to what their position was on Irish independence. The British Daily Chronicle reported on a conversation they had with a US official. I am able to state that Mr Wilson will decline to interfere at all in the matter raised by Mr O'Kelly. He will take up the attitude that it would be impossible for him to interfere in the domestic politics of one of the great nations with which he is acting at the present moment. After this, O'Kelly resorted to trying to influence other delegations. This proved largely unsuccessful. All delegations wanted favourable relations with the major powers at the conference and were not willing to risk incurring the wrath of the British government by supporting Irish independence. By June, when the Versailles Treaty with the defeated Germany was concluded, O'Kelly recognised the strategy of using the Paris peace talks was dead in the water, effectively ending any hope among members of Sinn Féin that they could force concessions from Britain through diplomacy. Even though this door was closed to Sinn Féin, support among Irish-American communities remained crucial and could influence US policy in years to come, so Eamon de Valera remained determined to travel to the US to embark on a speaking tour there. Leaving Ireland in the summer of 1919, this journey was something of a homecoming for de Valera, who landed in New York on June the 24th. He was, after all, returning to the city where he had been born in 1882. While this tour of the US will feature in a later episode, de Valera does leave the story to a certain extent, although the president of Sinn Féin and the most senior figure in the Republican movement, he would spend the coming 18 crucial months in the USA. He would not return to Ireland until late 1920. To finish today's show, we need to check back in on events that were developing on the ground back in Ireland in the spring of 1919. While the escape from Lincoln and the Paris peace talks dominated the headlines, through March and the early days of April, localised outbreaks of violence continued to keep tensions in Ireland on a knife edge. On March 20th, the IRA organised a well-executed raid on what was then called the Collinstown Aerodrome in North County Dublin. This would later be developed into Dublin Airport, but in 1919 it was an installation of the newly established Royal Air Force. The IRA had no interest in the aeroplanes, it was the guns that they wanted and they made away with 70 rifles and several thousand rounds of ammunition. Then, at the end of March, a magistrate, John Milling, was shot dead in Westport, County Mayo. Although 
No one was prosecuted. It appears this was carried out by the local IRA after Milling had been heard to brag that he was going to adopt a harsh stance with a local IRA leader due before his court. Then on St. Patrick's Day that year, March 17th, the city of Waterford had also witnessed major political violence, although not between Republicans and Crown forces, but between Republicans and their rivals, the Home Rule Movement. The eve of St. Patrick's Day that year, which fell on a Sunday, was, as it happens, the first anniversary of the death of the Home Rule leader, John Redmond. This movement, although clearly in terminal decline, organised a major event in his home county of Wexford, which several thousand people attended. Later in the evening, when a special train carrying his supporters returned to Waterford City, it was attacked by a crowd throwing stones at a level crossing outside the city. This set the stage for major confrontations at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Waterford. Riots would break out throughout the day as Home Rule supporters, along with off-duty soldiers, attacked Republicans. Now events like these, while by no means a full-scale war in a conventional sense, were ramping up tensions. It's in the next episode we will see the first event that really indicates Ireland was in a state of war as the British Army effectively besieged the city of Limerick in late April 1919. This is the story of the Limerick Soviet, which is a great opportunity to look at the impact of the Russian Revolution on the unfolding war in Ireland. That episode drops next week, or you can get exclusive early access to an ad-free version of that show from next Friday on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Until then, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 